Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. In the Christian life, we have a roadmap. It's called the Bible. It gives us direction on life. But the amazing thing about what the Bible tells us is that God has even a more specific map for our own life. He's got a plan for us. And that plan exists. And even if we get a glimpse of what it is, it's important that we just don't ditch the map and we get some sense of where he's taking us. The Bible's clear that we've got to pay special attention to where that map is taking us. God has a plan for your life? Even if we believe it, how do we know which path is God's path for us? Welcome to Focal Point. I'm your host, Dave Drewy. Today on the program, Pastor Mike Fabares is assuring us that God has provided us with a roadmap to follow. But learning to navigate his roadmap for your life may take some practice. To download the free study notes, go to focalpointradio.org. Well, let's dive in. I was headed northeast on Interstate 44, traveling through Missouri. It was very late. We were approaching St. Louis, and I was traveling with uh, my wife, and it was the first time that we ever took a cross-country trip together alone. And if you know St. Louis very well, you'll know that Interstate 44 and Interstate 55 and Interstate 64 and Interstate 70 all converge in downtown St. Louis, about a stone's throw from the Mississippi River. If you're traveling to Chicago and you're coming there from the middle of the country, you gotta get off Interstate 44 and you gotta get onto Interstate 55. And I was trying to make that transition there, dead tired, knowing that we needed to find a place to stop, a little motel. And the only motel we could afford in this little St. Louis travel guide was right there in the midst of that big congested interchange. We were exhausted. I was looking at this little three-inch map in this St. Louis guide seated on the lap of Carlin, and I was trying to drive to get this. We knew it was in Missouri. It was actually in St. Louis, not East St. Louis, so we didn't want to cross the bridge. And I said, we got to get off at the last possible place before we cross the bridge because that looks right, like, right where this motel is. Well, I missed the off-ramp and I traveled across the Mississippi River, which at that place is about a half a mile long, and the bridge is about three quarters to a mile long, and I took this thing all the way across, and I'm frustrated that I missed the exit, so I got off at the very first exit I could find in East St. Louis in Illinois, and I got back on Interstate 55, and I went all the way back across the Mississippi River. I'm looking with our real dim-lit dome light and our Datsun B210 at this map that's bouncing up and down on my wife's lap, trying to find out where I should get off. I knew it was right by the river, behind some warehouse somewhere probably, and I thought, i got to get off at the first exit I can get off on. I get off on the first exit I can get off on. I go underneath the interstate. I make a right turn instead of a left turn, which takes me on a big loop that puts me back on the interstate, crossing all the way across the Mississippi River again. As I'm cursing in Christian, you know how that is, <laughs> I'm frustrated thinking, get off at that familiar exit, get back on the interstate, head back all the way across the Mississippi River, and this time, don't miss it. 
So this time I get off at the second exit and I try to work my way around. And as I'm making this turn, I see where I'm supposed to go, but there's this big truck next to me. I can't make a left turn. I get shoved right back on the interstate and takes me all the way across the Mississippi River again. Being true to my gender, I refused for a long time to uh, get directions from anybody. and tried to, while we were traveling, you know, 60 miles an hour, figure this thing out with the map that was there in, in my wife's lap. And it was, it was an absolute disaster. We crossed, literally, we must have crossed the Mississippi River that night from Missouri to Illinois about 15 times. That's what it felt like. By the time we found the motel, we could have driven on to Chicago by that time because we had spent hours trying to find this place. It was a disaster. <laughs> uh, maps, when you're traveling, are critically important. But just because you have one doesn't mean you know how to read it, and it doesn't mean you know how to navigate your car to find the place that's on the map clearly marked there. You've got to learn to interact with that map. And in the Christian life, we have a road map. It's called the Bible. It gives us direction on life. But the amazing thing about what the Bible tells us is that God has even a more specific map for our own life. He's got a plan for us. And that plan exists. And even if we get a glimpse of what it is, it's important that we just don't ditch the map and we get some sense of where he's taking us, the Bible's clear that we've got to pay special attention to where that map is taking us. We need to learn to navigate it carefully. We need to know which exits to take, which turns to take, when to slow down and when to speed up. The Bible is so specific about God's will for our lives that it says that even the good works that we do every day were preordained by God. That's what Ephesians 2.10 says. Preordained by God that we should walk in this series of good works. Now think about that. That specific roadmap is there for our lives. And God gives us a sense of that map as we seek Him, as we study His Word, as we pray, as we seek counsel from other godly Christians. And it's our goal to learn how to navigate that map. Fortunately, there's some great reminders and some good instructions for us on how to do this from 2 Samuel chapter 2. And if you have a Bible, I want you to turn there. 2 Samuel chapter 2, we've been studying through this book, and we've come to verse number 8. And if you'll remember the context, this book is all about David. The majority of it shows how David ascended to the throne of Israel. And it started way back in 1 Samuel, 14 years earlier, when Samuel, the great prophet, poured some oil on David's head there in Bethlehem and told him God's plan for his life. God is going to make you the next king of Israel. You will be the ruler of God's people. That was 14 years from the current time in 2 Samuel chapter 2. And if you've been with us recently, you know that even though Saul had just died, about 10 twelfths of the nation at least did not accept David as the king. They were not sure that that's what they wanted to do, and it was only the southern part of Israel that embraced David as the king. And so David and his men were left with a precarious situation and the challenge of trying to figure out what to do next. And in verse number 8, we see that a man named Abner, the commander of Saul's army, actually makes the first move and complicates the matter a little bit. Look at it with me. 2 Samuel 2.8 says, Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim and made him king over Gilead, Asheri, Jezreel, over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all of Israel. 
Now, if you look at this guy, Ishbosheth, and say, son of Saul, you might scratch your head and say, now, wait a minute. Didn't Saul have all three of his sons out there on Mount Gilboa? And the Bible says they died with him. Yeah, it does say that. But it doesn't mention this guy, Ishbosheth. And most people scratch their head and think, well, who is Ishbosheth? And why wasn't he out fighting the battle with the rest of them? I don't know. It could be that he was the flunky son, right? I don't know. He could have been a guy who hated to fight. He could have been a guy they reserved and said, in case everyone does die in this battle, we want one heir to the throne. We don't know who he was. We don't know where he came from, but we know he was a son of Saul. And we know that Abner decided to put him as the king, even though he and everyone else knew that David was supposed to be the next king. If you have your Bible open, look across the page or on the next page to chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and as you glance at those verses, you'll see that it was public knowledge that God had appointed David the next king. It says, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said later, this is down the road chronologically, we're your own flesh and blood. In the past, why Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns, and Yahweh said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. It was public knowledge. But Abner, for whatever reason, whether it was his position or fear or insecurity or ambition or pride or whatever it was, he said, I don't like that plan. That may be God's plan for Israel, but I don't much care for that plan. I got a different plan. My plan is to maintain my position in Saul's army and put his son as the king. So he sets up this guy, Ishbosheth, who is, in essence, a puppet king by the command of Abner doing his pleasure. And he tries to circumvent God's will for his life and God's will for the nation. Jot this down if you're taking notes this morning. In that simple act of rebellion is the first foundational principle you and I must learn as we try to navigate the map that God has laid out for our lives. Number one, you can't or shouldn't fight it. I put it this way, don't fight God's plan. Don't fight God's plan. You may say, no kidding, Mike, that's so fundamental. I knew that when I walked in. But you know, you may know that it's a dumb thing to fight God's plan for your life. But don't we do it on some level almost every week in our Christian life? And it happens in secret. And it's God drawing us in one direction, knowing if we just stopped long enough and looked at God's map for our life with both eyes open, concentrated in a well-lit room, so to speak, and said, God, I'm just going to be quiet here before you. We know in our heart what God wants us to do, but we're fighting it. There was a man named after the first king of Israel in the New Testament. He later would become the Apostle Paul. He was on the road to Damascus thinking he was doing God's will, or at least it appears that he was thinking that he was doing God's will, persecuting this new sect called the Way, these followers of Jesus. And Jesus appears to him in this vision, knocks him off his horse, makes him blind, and he says, hey, pal, what are you doing fighting against me? Why do you persecute me? And there's an interesting phrase as Paul tells the story of what happened to him on the Damascus road. He says that God said to him, Paul, isn't it hard for you to kick against the goads? Now, that's probably not a vocabulary word we use very often in our culture. But in that day, the goad was this well-known critical tool that we used to poke and prod the mules and the camels and the donkeys to get them to go in the right direction. 
And if a donkey had any sense at all, which they don't have much, but if they have enough to know that if my master is poking me real hard as I'm trying to go right, perhaps he doesn't want me to go right. Perhaps he wants me to go left. And God says to this man, thinking he's doing God's will, or at least it appears he's thinking he's doing God's will, he's saying, let's just talk for a minute. Soon to be Paul, listen, don't you know deep down you're kicking against the goads? Don't you know that you're fighting against my will? And he doesn't even say, don't you know what he says? Isn't it hard to do that? <laughs> Isn't that a miserable way to live? Paul had everybody fooled. Everyone thought he was convinced he was doing God's will. And then God breaks in and says, you know you're not doing the right thing. You know it. Deep down you know it. Abner knew it. If anybody would have stopped Abner long enough to contemplate what God's will was for the nation, he knew it. But he was denying that. He was suppressing that. He was doing what he was doing because of his variety and plethora of reasons. He had all of his excuses, and he was fighting God's will. Perhaps you're fighting God's will on some level right now. And if you were to stop long enough in the frantic pace of your Christian life and just focus on what God wants for you, you know that what he wants for you is not what you're doing. And perhaps it's as major as what was going on in Paul's life. Perhaps you're in the wrong career and you know it. You know you're not working at the right place. You know God's calling for you is somewhere else, but you suppress that. God would say to you this morning, isn't it hard for you to kick against the goats? Isn't it hard for you to fight my will? And the basic fundamental truth is stop. Stop fighting me. Stop it. And it may not be on some big monumental level where you're fighting his will. Perhaps he's called you to be in another place, another geographic location, another job, another business, another uh, mission, another ministry. Who knows? Perhaps it's a little thing that relates to that phrase there in, in Ephesians 2.10 that it says he's ordained these good works, the specific good works of our lives. And maybe there's a good work in our life that God is prodding us to do and we're refusing to do it because we're scared or we feel inadequate. Perhaps he's saying you need to share the gospel with that guy you work with and you sit there every day and God is prodding you and you're just, mm, you're fighting God's will for your life because that good deed of sharing the gospel, you just got all your excuses, just like Abner. Well, if I do that, you know, it just, and I, my, and, but, mm, mm, and off we go. Met a gal this week who said she didn't like coming to church. She hadn't been to church but just a few times in the last 12 months. In my heart, I was thinking of this passage, and I thought, you know, it's hard to kick against the goads. You're fighting God's will. God's will is clear for you. You need to be a part of the body of Christ. Even when the bag passes each week, and I'm talking to regulars here, you fight God's will every week. But think about that. That's a regular part of the Christian life, and you fight it because you got all your reasons. I don't want to do that good work, and you're fighting God's will. Let me give you one really, really good reason not to fight God's will for your life, not to fight with God on what he wants you to do. Can I give you one really good reason why you shouldn't fight God? Because you'll lose. <laughs> That's the basic reason, okay? You're going to lose. You will lose. And you need to recognize that. Look across the page, chapter 3. Abner eventually loses the battle. He knew God's will. He suppressed it. He tried to fight it. Verse number 9 of chapter 3, this is Abner speaking now. Abner gets so crushed by God, trying to do his own thing. Here's the end of the story. 
Abner says, may God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Now, he should have said that in chapter 2, but he ended up through the process of trying to establish his own will in his life because of his desires and his preferences and his fears and his insecurities and his ambitions. He wanted to do his own thing. You will lose it may be a chapter, it may be two chapters, but you're going to lose when you fight God. If God wants you in the ministry, man, you're going to lose. You're going to be in the ministry. If God wants you in another state and to be living there, you're going to be in another state. Why fight it? I was reading a little bit about boxing this week. I don't know, I must have been in a bad mood or something, but I read about Rocky, not the movie guy, but the guy that the movies were made after. Rocky Marciano, he fought in the 40s and 50s, and he never lost a professional fight. He fought almost 50 times, 49 professional bouts as a heavyweight fighter. He never lost. 42 out of the 49 successes he had in the ring as a professional fighter, he won by knockout. Think about that. Can you imagine stepping into the ring with Rocky? Here, your turn. Go. I mean, forget it, right? I fought Rocky once. His name was Michael Guyton. Maybe he'll hear this message on the radio. I don't know, but <laughs> this guy never lost a fight in junior high. You know what I'm saying? Every single time he got entangled with another guy in school, he won. Well, one day he picked a fight with me. I was no dummy. Here he threw me against the wall. He was in the middle of art class. Figures, fights break out in art class a lot. <laughs> Fortunately, this teacher had enough sense to come over and save my life, right? As his fist was cocked and he was ready just to knock me out and I was there to limp, right? The teacher comes up and pulls this guy off of me. But you know how this works in junior high as he's pulling me off of me. He looks at me and he says, Fabar is after class, you're dead. <laughs> well, I couldn't wait for the bell, right, that day. <laughs> I remember walking out of the class fast and getting in a fight in the hallway with Michael Guyton. Now, I knew if I faced him this way, I would lose. So I faced him this way. <laughs> it was the only fight I ever got in where my back and the back of my head got beat up really bad. But I figured it was better than the front of my face and the front of my body. I just knew it'd be better to curl up in a ball and lose all pride in this school than to try and face that guy because he never lost a fight. And I thought to myself, that's much like we in the Christian life are foolish enough to say, okay, God, I'll take you. I want my will, you want your will, let's go. You might as well just make your concessions and say, I guess I'm going to be embarrassed, I guess I'm going to be inadequately prepared, I guess I'm going to be, you know, without any money or lonely or on the street or can't breathe or, you know, whatever. Whatever it's going to be, God, I might as well give up because you're going to win. So I give you the victory before it starts. And I say, God, if you want David on the throne, even though I'm Abner, the commander of Saul's army, I might as well start sending out applications and resumes now because I'm out of a job. Because, God, you're going to win. David's the next king. But instead, in verse number 12, it says he said, no, I'm going to take an army. I'm going to take my best uh, uh, fighters and warriors. I'm going to march down to the south of Israel, and I'm going to take on David, and I'm going to fight God. And so off he goes. He takes his best men. Joab, who is his counterpart in David's crew, the commander-in-chief of David's army, takes his men in a defensive posture and comes to the pool of Gibeon. 
And at this pool, there's a standoff. One group sat down on one side of the pool. That was Abner and the men from the north. And one group, David's men, led by Joab, sat on the other side of the pool. And Abner says to Joab, let us have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. <laughs> Can you imagine in his mind thinking that this is going to be a successful thing for him? He is stubborn and determined and thinks that his will may perhaps win over God's will. Foolish, right? Don't fight God's will. And we can check that off and say, okay, duh, yeah, let's do that. But let me show you a colossal mistake coming up in the second half of verse 14. <laughs> 14, second half, bottom of the verse. Here it is, colossal mistake. In the Hebrew, you can't see it here, but it starts with the word duh, right? <laughs> Joab says, duh, all right, let them do it. Now, let me tell you why that's such a stupid thing. Here is Joab. He's on the winning team. He represents the king that God has established to be king. It is God's will that David become king. He is going to win. But instead of being a defensive commander, trying to protect the families and lives of the anointed king, he gets pulled into this line-in-the-sand, schoolyard mentality, put him up, let's fight. And instead of saying, no, we're just here to defend our king, he says, duh, yeah, let's do it. And Joab on the winning team, with God on his side, chooses to try and establish David's kingdom, God's will, in his way, a way that is not acceptable. Why do I say that? Because if you were to read the Torah, the Pentateuch, and look at the Old Testament principles that are to govern the relationship between fellow Israelites, you will know it is unthinkable, it is reprehensible to see brother Israelites fighting with brother Israelites. This is not good. Everything in the Pentateuch tells the Jew that a fellow Jew gets all the rights and privileges of an actual blood sibling. Now, I know that you parents out there, if you have knowledge of the real world, there are times you know that a, a schoolyard child may have to fight and defend himself, right? He may have to protect his little sister. He may have to protect his orthodontra. He may have to protect whatever, but there's a time for him to, to fight. But if your child has a beef with another child in your family, there is no way as a parent with any sense you will tolerate saying to your kids in the midst of their dispute, just go in the backyard and have it out, right? You're not gonna do that. Because you as a parent see these two children and say, my children are not gonna put their dukes up and knock each other's teeth out. It's not gonna happen. We're learning how to navigate God's roadmap for our lives with Pastor Mike Fabares, and you're listening to Focal Point. If you want to hear today's message again or share it with a friend, you can access our audio archives online anytime at focalpointradio.org. Well, whether you're a regular listener or today's your first time joining us, I'm sure you've noticed that Pastor Mike says it as he sees it, straight from the Bible. He doesn't skip the difficult sections. Because as good as it feels to focus only on the positive, that doesn't prepare us for dealing successfully with the nitty-gritty stuff of life. We're passionate about helping people understand the clear truth of Scripture. And if you've been strengthened through this program, will you partner with us today so we can continue reaching folks with these daily Bible teaching messages? Donate online at focalpointradio.org or by calling 888 320 
888-985-5885. When you give a gift of any amount today, we'll send you a copy of Nate Pickowitz's book called How to Eat Your Bible as a Token of Our Gratitude. And this is one of the last times I'll mention this resource. If you find you aren't getting a lot out of your personal Bible study time, or you just aren't in the habit of reading God's Word much these days, then this book will be a great encouragement. And that's exactly why Pastor Mike and the Focal Point team selected this practical book as this month's resource. Go online to focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. And you know, a great way to develop a deep love for God's Word is by tuning in right here on this program each day as we study the Scriptures. If you ever miss a program, you can download the free Focal Point mobile app to listen anytime, anywhere. Or you can always listen on our website, focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Drewey, inviting you to join us again Wednesday as we continue the message called Learning to Navigate His Roadmap for Your Life, right here on Focal Point. Hey there, Pastor Mike here. We're almost out of time, but before we go, I want to personally invite you to contact us here. Let us know how we can be praying for you. Head on over to focalpointradio.org and click the contact page or send me a note on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pastor Mike or twitter.com slash Pastor Mike. Can't wait to hear from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.